Uh, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and open our time for the class today. Father, thank you for uh, this time that we can be gathered together. Thank you for the opportunity uh, for this class, uh, for the privilege it is to be able to be in a room like this full of people that are uh, curious and excited to learn uh, about this topic that we're calling theological triage. And really, Lord, this just is a matter of uh, wisdom and discernment as it relates to uh, the truth of your word and understanding it in a way that is helpful, uh, in a structure that's helpful uh, to think about as we uh, go about our lives with interacting with others and knowing how and who to partner with in ministry and um, or just so many things that this can be helpful for. So, uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, with this today. Uh, help us uh, have fresh, uh, thoughtful engagement uh, that's gracious and kind and loving around your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, think through these things in a way that uh, would be uh, ultimately for your glory and that uh, we would uh, please you in our engagement in these uh, thoughts and these matters. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, uh, really what I wanted to do, I kind of put a slide together um, that I want to just kind of begin to uh, track with you. Uh, I know that there's a lot of thoughts uh, and a lot that can get kind of complicated, so sometimes visuals uh, can kind of be helpful as it relates to uh, what, what we're trying to do here, what we're, what we're trying to build uh, as we kind of go through here. So level one, this is what we've talked about really thus far uh, of theological matters and theological tri triage is uh, essential to the gospel itself, okay? So, uh, and it equals uh, the requirement to have courage and conviction, uh, that's really what we're uh, striving for. We'll talk and try to finish up kind of this level one today. So uh, we're not finished up quite with that yet. And we will certainly return in, in the next weeks to this. But uh, this is the, the concern as it relates to uh, that first level. It's essential to the gospel itself. We talked about uh, either by defending the gospel or by proclaiming the gospel uh, these uh, doctrines that we're talking about within that category are going to be helpful for one or both of those things, right? Either defending the gospel or proclaiming it. These things are the essentials that we must have. They are kind of the sine qua non. You cannot have anything less than this and be an Orthodox Christian. Uh, so that's, that's kind of that level one. But level two, where we'll be transitioning to today, is uh, urgent for the health and practice of the church and requires wisdom and balance. Okay? So urgent for the health and practice of the church, and it requires wisdom and balance as we begin thinking through these types of theological issues. The third that we'll talk about and start getting into next week is significant to Christian theology, and it requires circumspection and restraint. And we'll talk about that and what I mean by that a little bit uh, more next week. But uh, thoughtfulness and self-control or restraint is needed uh, to understand the differences that we may have and to be okay with that uh, as we think about theological matters because not everything 
uh, is always as clear as what we would all love them to be, right? Even as we think about the noetic effect of sin on our minds is that we, we don't have all the capacity and capability that we wish we had to understand everything that even God has revealed about himself. So uh, these are important um, dynamics. So uh, hopefully you can all can read that. So uh, level one, theological matters essential to the gospel itself equals or requires courage and conviction. Level two, theological matters uh, urgent for the health and practice of the church. We'll talk about that today. Uh, and it requires wisdom and balance. Level three is significant to Christian theology, and I would say Christian living, uh, and it uh, requires circumspection and uh, restraint uh, or self-control, perhaps could be another way to say that. Uh, And then level four uh, that we'll talk about as we kind of finish up the class here in a couple of weeks, but uh, really it's insignificant to our gospel witness and ministry collaboration, and it requires charity and diversity. Okay, so these are areas that uh, we're beginning to work down and begin to kind of lock in some different doctrines uh, as it relates to each one of these. Uh, Again, not exhaustive. I cannot do that uh, in the time that we have in these five weeks. But uh, to begin giving you some samplings of what might fit in each of these of each of these categories. So that's kind of where we've where we're going, where we've been a little bit. Uh, but let me, uh, let me kind of talk a little bit about uh, and, and just recap where we've been here on this first order of theological matters. Uh, really, first-ranked theological matters are essential, as I said, to the gospel itself and therefore essential to being a Christian. If you don't affirm these, you really are outside of orthodoxy. And we're going to talk, and I'm going to try to give you... Uh, I'm not going to call it a comprehensive list, but a pretty good starting list of what those doctrines would be um, in order to be placed within orthodoxy. Uh, So some examples. Uh, First rank issues would be the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. This doctrine is a basic conception of God that distinguishes Christians from all other religions. Another example would be justification by faith. The basic claim that we are made right with God by grace through faith and that we're not meriting our own salvation. And that's the heart of the gospel itself, right? And I know you guys, or you ladies, I should say, uh, that just went through Galatians over the last uh, several weeks on uh, the Wednesday Bible study. Uh, That was very much at the heart of what you studied in the book of Galatians, right? Uh, So you understand that maybe better than a lot of us in the room. Uh, so um, then we talked a little bit about some, some criteria, right? And I'll just uh, put all these up here. Uh, these are the seven that I gave you, but uh, I think it's helpful kind of boil these down. If you really want to get intricate, I think these can be helpful. But uh, for most of us, I think uh, the, the real matter is these four. How clear is the Bible on this doctrine? And I think that's your first, uh, I gave you that just to kind of recap uh, is how clear is the Bible on this doctrine? Number two, what? Yes. Sorry. Are you going to be posting these online? I can't. Later? 
Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah, I'm moving through just in kind of a recap fashion. So most of this shouldn't be new and original content uh, right now, but uh, I understand. I can post it. I'll be happy to do that. Uh, number two, uh, hands are on fire. Uh, what is the doctrine's importance or significance to the gospel itself? Okay, what is this doctrine's importance or significance, I prefer that word, to the gospel itself? Number three, what is the testimony of the historical church concerning this doctrine? Yeah, just again, we, we talked about that a little bit, and we'll talk about that specifically as it relates to baptism today. Uh, you can begin uh, seeing uh, both the successes and the help of church history and the failures and what we're to learn uh, from that uh, as we look a little bit at church history. Uh, and number four, what is the doctrine's effect upon the church today or even Christian living? Uh, what, what impact will this have if you believe it or you don't believe it um, and, and the impact that it would have? So uh, that's, um, uh, that's hopefully a little bit of help uh, for you in just the sense of recapping where we've been. But today, uh, where we want to pick up is really on that second matter there on uh, what are these specific areas of first-rank doctrines that I think we left off on last week. First-rank doctrines and theological triage, again, refer to those beliefs that are considered foundational, essential, and non-negotiable to the Christian faith. These doctrines are crucial for defining the core identity of Christianity and are believed to be central to the gospel message. And so that is the, the essence of what we want to begin uh, to look at here today, and then we'll begin to move into that second-rank category as well. So what are some examples of first-rank doctrines? Well, number one, I would say, and others say, this isn't just Jeremiah, right? Uh, this is... Uh, a lot of people that uh, are far smarter, far brighter uh, theologians than I am. I'm just really kind of regurgitating what I've read and bringing it to you, uh, is the authority of Scripture. It all starts with the Scriptures, right? Without the Scriptures, and we talked about that a little bit, but uh, without the Scriptures, what is our starting point? What is our authority? Because at that point, we have nothing to base it off of. Your word is as good as mine. It's something has to be outside of us, objective truth, as a measure to which we look for our doctrine. So the belief that the Bible is the inspired and authoritative word of God is central to our understanding as Christians and to our process and theological triage. This includes the concepts of inerrancy, infallibility, and the sufficiency of Scripture. So really, in total, we're talking about all of what it means uh, for us to have an uh, orthodox understanding of the Scriptures. Uh, that is again, been held uh, for many centuries throughout Christianity. And when you begin to falter on this issue, then the rest you may as well not even talk about, uh, because this is the foundation of it all. Secondly would be the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity affirms the belief in one God who eternally existed in three persons as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
And this concept is foundational to Christian theology as well and distinguishes Christianity from other monotheistic religions. It is really important that we have a secure understanding of the Trinity. And we begin to see that from Genesis all the way through in developing it, right? So the Trinity is not a biblical word, but it's a theological construct that helps us make sense of all of the totality of Scripture, what it teaches us about the Godhead, understanding who God is. Number three would be the deity of Christ. It affirms the divinity of Jesus Christ. Christians believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human. And denial of the deity of Christ would significantly alter the understanding of a person, of the person, I should say, and work of Jesus Christ in the Christian faith. You begin to take the deity of Christ away, and it strips Christianity completely. And so we have to stand by the deity of Christ. Again, as I said last week, we have to know these doctrines of which we would be willing to die for. We'd be willing to go to the stake for on some of these issues that we're talking about in first rank order. Number four would be the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a central tenet of the Christian faith, and it's linked to the hope of eternal life and the victory over sin and death. Again, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, if this is not true, right, we are to be pitied. We have nothing. We have nothing. Our, our whole faith is worthless, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15. If we don't have the resurrection, it's all pointless. Number five would be justification by grace through faith. The understanding that salvation is a gift from God and is received by faith and not human works of any kind. This doctrine is central to the Christian concept of justification. So we have to understand this or else, again, the gospel's teeth are lost. Number six would be the atonement itself. The belief in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross where his death reconciles humanity with God and provides us forgiveness from sin. Right? We, we have to have that. We have to have penal substitutionary atonement and our understanding of that. And again, I wish on so many of these that I could take more time to actually develop each doctrine because I know I'm using some terms that may be unfamiliar, uh, but I would say write them down and begin going and researching them and come to more equipped classes because we will get to those and we will develop those. We will teach those. But for today, for this class, it's just unfortunately outside of what we can accomplish to, to really go into these in detail. Uh, number seven is the exclusivity of Christ. The belief that salvation is found exclusively in the person of Jesus Christ. This doctrine emphasizes the unique and central role of Jesus as the only way to God. So no universalism doesn't, cannot happen. When Jesus says, even as we've studied in John 14, 6 recently, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me, right? It's exclusive. There is no other way. 
And then number eight may be significant around this time of year, and maybe even surprising, is the virgin birth of Christ. Denying the virgin birth would raise significant theological concerns and potentially impact broader theological frameworks related to Christology and the nature of Jesus Christ and the authority of the scriptures. Yeah. I was wondering if, if uh, when you went through and you hit deity, I thought the next one was going to be humanity. Okay. Would humanity fit under this? Uh, yes, yes. And, and even deity, uh, if I didn't say it, I, I would say, you know, we want to affirm the humanity and deity of Christ. Say, okay. It wasn't, you know, listed. Yes, yeah. And so then absolutely in this one it certainly brings in the incarnation and the humanity of christ as well yes yeah absolutely um so therefore the christian uh or i'm sorry the virgin birth is typically considered a first rank doctrine within theological triage framework and so uh what that is to say is if you begin to lose any of these components it's kind of the thread that you start pulling at Christianity and the sweater just falls apart, right? You, you have to have these core. Could they be, could there be more? And uh, yes, I think there, there could be more that we could discuss and, and talk about, but I would say there cannot be anything less. These are essential for our understanding of first rank Christian doctrine, orthodoxy. And these first-rank doctrines are considered fundamental to our Christian faith, and the denial or even the distortion of these beliefs would place an individual or group outside of the boundaries of orthodoxy. And they provide the theological foundation upon which other doctrines and beliefs are built. And so we must keep in mind that the identification of first-rank doctrines can vary slightly among different Christian traditions, but the ones listed here are broadly recognized across mainstream Christian theology, not just today, but again, throughout the centuries. These are the core tenets of Christian orthodoxy. And this makes some believers uncomfortable since all truth is important. We don't want to you know, have the, our distinctives and doctrines to be minimized by any sense, but non-essential doesn't mean unimportant. I think I talked about that a little bit last week and maybe even the week prior, is that we don't want to use, I don't even really like that word, important, unimportant, because if it's in the word, it's important. We have to understand it to the degree that God's given it to us to understand, and, and we must apply ourselves to that. Uh, but in the sense of significance, I think that's a helpful word uh, to talk about as it relates to wh what role and significance does this doctrine have to play in my understanding of my faith and, um, and so on in, in Christian life. Um, so they provide the theological foundation upon which all these other doctrines then are built. And so uh, we should do all our best to understand what the scriptures teach on uh, every point. And I'm passionate about many secondary issues. And we'll talk about those and some of them today. However, it's far more important that we agree on the truth of the Trinity than what we agree on our view of even sanctification or the application of biblical lifestyle principles. 
Like how we become more like Jesus, right? Does the scripture teach us very clearly? Of course, but how do we go about that? Uh, there can be some diversity in that uh, as long as Christ is the goal. And so we want to understand that uh, there can be some lesser significance to some of the doctrines and some of the things that we teach and talk about even within New Community Church, uh, whereas some, you know, somebody comes in and puts the gun to my head and says, deny this truth, and I'm going to say, I'm sorry, I can't, and whatever may come, that comes. Others, you know, by conviction, I hope I don't just waffle in that moment, right, and just say, okay, well, yeah, that's scary, so, uh, okay, whatever you want it to say. You know, uh, now hopefully that's not my response, but I may say, hey, you know what? Let me go back to the scriptures and look at that again before I make a final determination, right? Uh, before you pull that trigger, let me go back and, and do a little more work on that uh, particular area to make sure uh, that what I believe is my absolute conviction. And so... Um, we need to have an understanding of this, and mature Christians gladly affirm this and reflect it in their emphasis and attitude. So mature Christians will begin to have an understanding of this is first rank, this is second rank, this is third rank, and that begins to modify and adjust how I approach a conversation or how I approach a circumstance, or how I approach a supported missionary of New Community Church, perhaps. There's a lot of implications on how this goes into effect and how we think about uh, the types of things that, whether it's a conversation over the dinner table or whether it's some kind of ministry partnership, how we do that. And so this is the significance and importance of that. And again, I believe godly, mature Christians will begin to have, whether you think about it in the sense of what we put up on the, the screen here or not, you will be able to begin to work through some kind of grid work in your mind of, hey, this really isn't that big of an issue that we need to be like, you know, going at it here. But if somebody's saying, hey, no, I don't think Jesus was God. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> That we need to talk about. Like, that, that's something that we need to discuss. And I know it can be funny, but there's, there's a lot of religions that say that, right? And so if you're in a conversation, maybe it's somebody that you met by handing this out, and all of a sudden you're at coffee with this, and yeah, I just don't believe Jesus is God. Okay, well, can we talk about that? You know, and, and this is something that the Bible makes really clear. What is your source authority? And you can go back to that and help them begin to understand, well, wh what, what basis are you saying that on? And you can go back again there, and you're at the authority of Scripture. Um, and you're, you're discussing at that level. So indeed, some of these theological matters are relatively easy to rank. For example, I have no problem or hesitation in labeling the doctrine of Trinity as a first-rank doctrine. <laughs> I can easily and clearly say the Trinity is foundational to the gospel. It's essential in its content uh, to clearly and abundantly set forth 
uh, in the scriptures. So I, I can go to them and see uh, throughout the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, how the Trinity is clearly developed. And not only can I do that, but I can lean on church history and show anybody where that doctrine comes from. It has been systematically defined by early creeds and councils within the church. Uh, so I can go back and lean on them. And it has most significant relevancy throughout every aspect of the Christian life. So what did I just do? With the Trinity, I just went through those four main things. What, what significance does it have? Yes, it, ha it marks every one of those. However, not every doctrine fits so nicely into this first category of theological triage. We must understand that there is a spectrum of doctrinal significance, right? Some doctrines we might conclude are on the border between first order and second order doctrines. And some second order might almost feel or seem like first order. While others might be nearly tertiary and third order doctrines. And so just to say that it's okay, this is a first order, this is a second order, this is a third order, and you just kind of throw it in that bucket, doesn't even mean that all of those in first order, second order, and third order are all of the same significance. I hope that makes sense. There's a, there's a theological spectrum here from the greatest of significance to the least of significance. And what we're just trying to do is kind of put some little borders in there at each one of those, those spots to say, yeah, I think... That, that's clearly like that first level stuff, but uh, even within that, there may be some that are bordering, you know, right on the edge of second and, and first or right on the edge of second and third. So this, this whole spectrum uh, needs to be in mind as we're thinking about these things because um, there, as you begin thinking like this, if you don't already, you, you will find yourself like, ooh. Uh, I don't know, like, that, that one's really important, like, but, you know, like, you know, and, and you kind of find yourself teetering between, you know, where these are at. And so uh, don't get hyper fixated on, you know, which category do they fit in, uh, but it is helpful to begin seeing, okay, that's first order, second order, third order. Thus, we want to be careful as we begin to uh, go to these next levels of theological triage that we're not um, viewing all first, second, and third order issues as equal in each of their buckets, right? We'll be in danger of glossing over important differences if we begin just dumping all what we believe into these three or four buckets and then just kind of wash our hands and walk away. Okay, I got them there, I got them there. Well, there's nuances of a lot of these theological positions that make it complicated sometimes and, and make it a little bit more work than just being able to say, okay, first order, okay, I'm going to leave it there and walk away. Uh, and this is the danger inherent in any system of categorization. This is not reason to avoid the use of categories. It just means that we need to be aware of these categories or dynamics and operate within that spectrum of understanding theologically. And so oversimplification is something that we must be aware of as it is a risk in this process. So all that to kind of say leading up to second rank doctrines. What are they? Well, um, it's important to note that second rank doctrines can be 
probably the most significant and difficult to identify. Uh, they, there's many within this category that you will want to say, ooh, I think that's first order. Or, ah, I don't think so. I think that's third order once we kind of get there. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've got a, you know, I had a seminary professor that said, hey, gentlemen, you have to, and we were talking about Greek uh, and, and understanding the Greek and translating it, and he, he would say, you have to die for your own sins. You know, when, when translating and working through these things, you have to make decisions and stand by them and live by them, right? Uh, and so same with this, is you will have to make, I'm not gonna just, you know, kind of spoon feed what, what all these are. Uh, you will have to kind of work some of these out yourself uh, as, you, as you begin thinking about this way a little bit. But uh, number one, uh, I wanna talk a little bit about the mode of baptism. The mode of baptism. Differences in the mode of baptism, examples would be immersion, sprinkling, pouring, uh, depending on your theological and church tradition, uh, are often viewed as a secondary rank issue. And while important, the method of baptism does not affect the core message of salvation. And this is significant, and I want to use this one in a bit more of an extended example for our purpose this morning. Uh, and so we're going to dive a little bit into, as I said, the, the church history behind uh, our views on baptism. You see, the Anabaptist movement in the 16th century was characterized by several key theological and social beliefs that set them apart from other Protestant groups at that time. And the main points of debating involved the Anabaptists. Uh, it was really whether adults should be baptized only or whether children should be baptized. Anabaptists rejected infant baptism, insisting instead on believer's baptism, that you needed to be uh, at a point in life where you could make that uh, faith for yourself and that you would be baptized at that point. And they argued that individuals should be baptized only make, after making a professional faith uh, a profession of faith, I should say, uh, rejecting the practice of baptizing infants. And the separation of church and state was a significant issue within this whole discussion in church history. You see, the Anabaptists advocated for the complete separation of the church from the state. And they opposed the idea of state church and believed in the autonomy of the local church community. And they also believed in a form of pacifism. Many Anabaptists were pacifists, rejecting the use of force or violence, even in self-defense. You're like, what does this have to do with baptism? Just hold on, I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> the stance brought them into conflict with both Catholic and Protestant authorities, who often relied on the state's use of force to get what they wanted, even within the church. And so the community of believers became very significant in this whole historical discussion. Anabaptists emphasized the formation of a close-knit community of believers, often living together in communal arrangements. And this communal lifestyle was seen as a way to embody their understanding of Christian discipleship. So not so much of a state-run church, but this very organic development of a body of believers. 
And so you began to see this radical reformation that was taking place at this time. Anabaptists were part of the, this radical reformation, seeking a more radical break with traditional church practices and emphasizing a return to what they believed were the original teachings of Jesus. And so you begin to see this dynamic taking place within this season of church history and the debates and conflicts surrounding these theological and social positions led to the persecution of the Anabaptists by Catholic and Protestant authorities. And they're often viewed as a threat to the religious and social order of that time. So in, in fact, Eric Swingley, a Swiss Reformation leader, played a significant role in the early years of the Anabaptist movement and was his stance towards Anabaptists that was so controversial at that time and even harsh towards them. Zwingli was a key figure in the Swiss Reformation and he had the Anabaptists and the theological disagreement that was taking place there led to this conflict and then even eventual persecution of the Anabaptists. And there are some key actions and attitudes that Zwingli had towards the Anabaptists. So there were these theological disputes. Zwingli had theological differences with the Anabaptists, and especially regarding the interpretation of Scripture and the nature of the church and the practice of baptism. And so Zwingli strongly believed in the state church, infant baptism, and a close relationship between the church and government. And so then that developed into these public debates that would take place. So Zwingli would engage in public debates with Anabaptist leaders, such as uh, Conrad uh, Gribble and Felix Manns. And these debates often centered around issues like infant baptism and the role of state in religious matters. And these theological disagreements then began to escalate into tensions between Zwingli and the Anabaptists. So you guys begin to see how this theological triage thing can be Become significant in an issue like this. So then we see, as this takes place, persecution. Zwingli, along with other Swiss authorities, took measures to suppress the Anabaptist movement. And Anabaptists faced persecution, including imprisonment, fines, and in extreme cases, execution <coughs> over baptism. Zwingli supported these measures viewing the Anabaptists as a threat to the religious and social order of the day. And so in 1527, we begin to see this really come to a head with the execution of Felix Mance. One of these notable examples was his execution. And Mance was an early Anabaptist leader and co-founder of the movement he was arrested, tried, and eventually drowned in the Lament River in Zurich at the instigation of Zwingli and the other authorities around him. And this event marked a tragic chapter in the conflict between Zwingli, Zwingli and the Anabaptists. In fact, Zwingli is, uh, is quoted as saying this, quote, let him who talks about going under the water go under and he drowned Mance. Now, it's important to note that Zwingli's actions were not unique to him. 
Persecution of Anabaptists was a broader phenomenon in various Reformation-era territories involving both Catholic and Protestant authorities. And theological and political differences contributed to a very complex and often hostile environment for the Anabaptist movement during this period. And while this is not taking place today, this illustrates the importance of theological triage, right? While there were complex and significant issues taking place within this historical context, Zwingli failed at theological triage. Zwingli failed at it. Whether you call it that then or not, right, uh, wasn't a term that was coined back then, but he failed to see the levels and significance of theological matters and went to the extent to have someone killed as a result. And so these things are very important as we think about them uh, and as things escalate even in our world. And right now, we don't have that threat of persecution, but I think it's possible uh, within our lifetime uh, at one level or another. Maybe not drowning, maybe not uh, killing, but at some level, I think persecution is very possible. And so it's um, an understanding uh, around these types of matters that we need to be able to have a proper understanding of where different theological matters fit. And, um, and, and this is, I think, a, a really helpful story. If you go back and look, and there's a lot of other ones, if you go uh, throughout church history, it's kind of hard to actually pick one. Uh, you could go with uh, the whole uh, debate over uh, communion, you know, would be another example. And you could go through a lot of different ones, depending at what point in church history uh, you want to look at, uh, they are there. So number two here, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, that one on, on the mode of baptism, just to give you an example of the significance and importance of it. But number two, in uh, much more briefly, is end times or eschatology. Views on the timing and nature of events related to the end times Examples would be premillennialism, postmillennialism, or amillennialism are often considered secondary. And while they are most significant and important, these doctrinal differences on eschatology uh, do not impact one's salvation or really have a direct tie to the gospel itself and the significance of the gospel. There are great brothers. Uh, that I read, that I enjoy, that in fact, there are more brothers that I read uh, and enjoy that I disagree with than what I agree with. That's pretty, pretty crazy, but it's true. Uh, most of the guys that I really like reading and, and enjoy uh, listening to are Presbyterian. Uh, but on some of these areas of theological matters, I, I disagree with them. And I have my, you know, my uh, flags up when I hear little things here and there, and I just kind of mark those as like, yeah, I know where that's coming from, and I move on. Uh, and that's fine. Uh, but to be able to do that is, is a helpful thing. Uh, number three would be church government or church polity. Disagreements about the structure and governance of the church for example, Episcopal, Presbyterian, or Congregational are often seen as what we would call secondary or second-rank issues. 
Uh, number four would be spiritual gifts. And specifically, when I mention that, uh, it's obviously uh, there's no controversy on some of the gifts, right? Uh, gifts of administration, I don't hear too many people uh, commenting on as, you know, today or not today or anything like that. But uh, the, the uh, miraculous gifts are. And in this sense, we're talking about uh, cessationism or continuationism, whether uh, we hold to that some of those miraculous gifts have ceased or whether they continue. Very important issue. We've spoken about it, certainly as a church. Uh, we even have it in our doctrinal statement, but it is a secondary issue. Uh, number five, I might pick some fights here. You ready? Uh, creation views. Views on creation, differing views on the interpretation of the creation account, young earth creationism, old earth creationism, theistic evolution, are often considered more in that camp of secondary rank issues. Uh, and so those, these can be, uh, that if we're not careful, kind of those types of issues that we ride as hobby horses uh, and, and begin to... Uh, create conflicts and issues over if we're, if we're not really careful about them. Uh, number six, you might be surprised, I, I would put this on the list, but uh, again, it's not just me. Uh, soteriology. Now, you're like, whoa, 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 that's like directly connected to the gospel, right? Uh, well, some aspects of soteriology, such as the order of salvation or the order salutis, or the views on divine election may be considered more of a secondary rank issue, as long as they don't compromise the essential nature of salvation by grace through faith. Remember that list that we already talked about? Uh, uh oh, see, we got one. Uh, what is, give me. What is soteriology? Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yes, thank you. That's helpful. Um, <laughs> you're right can we really back up uh, yeah soteriology the doctrine of salvation so uh, we need to make sure that uh, so I am very passionate and convinced and we are as a church as our elders and our doctrinal statement of the doctrine of election we believe at New Community Church that the scriptures make that abundantly clear, and we can have that conversation. I'd be happy to. Uh, but uh, it is not an issue where it's a first-rank issue, but sometimes the very first Calvinist that I ever met was the most arrogant uh, jerk I'd ever met. <laughs> and when I first met him, I'm like, wow, if that's what that doctrine does, I want nothing to do with it. Fortunately, the Lord brought me along in his grace and taught me uh, to love and to recognize that this is actually a doctrine that should develop a deep humility, not pride or arrogance. Uh, and so, uh, but, but it's very easy to allow some of those kinds of things to begin to feel or think like, oh, that's, that's first level and you're ready to like die and fight for it. Uh, and I just think we have to be careful there. It's important to note that the classification of doctrines as primary or secondary can vary among Christian denominations and theological traditions, and, and we just have to be uh, careful in understanding that. Yeah? Could you expand a little bit on the order of salvation? Yeah, yeah. I, so, um, <laughs> uh, how do I do that? Um, okay, so. It was Dana's question. Yeah, right. <laughs> 
It's her fault. Yeah, so uh, Romans 8, right? So uh, it, there's uh, what's often called the golden chain of salvation or the what was uh, often called uh, in the Latin order salutis, which is the order of salvation, which precedes which in uh, the whole process of ju- justification, uh, election, um, that, that whole chain. I, I, I could go there, uh, but it's, it's that whole thing. I encourage you to dig into it. Uh, again, I'd love to really spend time on that, but uh, there's, there's debate. Uh, there's, there's good theological debate on uh, where uh, election happens in that mix and where uh, different things uh, take place in that process, right? Uh, from a divine perspective versus what it seems like from a human perspective, right? Uh, and so we have to look to the scriptures to say, okay, what do the scriptures teach us? Putting all that together in a way that says, okay, we think this is that chain, like how that works. And it gets really into the, uh, into the weeds on, you know, salvation. Uh, uh, but it's a helpful study to understand when you want to really get into the weeds on, you know, uh, how does this actually work? Uh, in the economy of God as it relates to our salvation, uh, it's a helpful study. So I don't know if that helped at all, but uh, that's probably as best as I can do right now. Uh, Yeah. Was there anything else I thought? Yeah. Would would an example of that be the question of do you believe and then you repent or do you repent and then you believe? Yes. Yes. That's all related. Yep. 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 Uh, Okay, so the goal is to recognize the foundational and non-negotiable doctrines that are central to the Christian faith and to maintain unity in essentials while allowing for diversity in some of these secondary matters, right? Not to, you know, go to the mat for every issue and and to understand that there is to be room within our understanding uh, of these, these other ordered issues. Secondary issues are important enough that Christians may separate into distinct worshiping communities, such as new community, uh, but they're not so important as to divide from uh, common causes. Uh, Historically, many level two issues pertain to doctrines of the church or ecclesiology. And so if we think about that and consider, for example, the difference between the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist Confession, Presbyterians and Baptists are divided over whether or not to bring infants into the church's membership through baptism, right? So that's, that's something that's like pretty fundamental to Baptists versus Presbyterians, right? And so you begin to see, oh, this is kind of where some of these different denominational distinctions have come from. Uh, and, and we can begin to understand that, okay, that's a second level issue, but it makes it an important issue for how we fellowship and how we conduct life based upon our personal convictions, right? Uh, and how we understand uh, these, these teachings. Uh, okay, so we have uh, a couple of minutes. Uh, what thoughts or questions uh, are there uh, here? Just one. Nate, yeah. Yeah, uh, the topic that I've been coming up with lately, or coming across lately is baptism of the Holy Spirit coming at a second instance, and then certain gifts being a sign of that, where would you put that? Because I feel like that like gets into the weeds of the doctrine of the, the Holy Spirit and his ministry. 
Yeah. Where would you second? Second. Yeah, second rank, uh, because yeah, again, it has a tentacle into first rank, right? Um, and and to understand, you know, uh, because what that what they teach, uh, if I'm hearing you right, and what you're talking about, is kind of the second blessing, the second wave of the Holy Spirit coming upon you, and you know that that's like this extra blessing. Uh, that you get later after the moment of salvation, right? But if we go over this first rank issue of that person, even if they've been taught that, even if they believe that, um, they can believe the essence of the gospel and everything that we've talked about in first rank. Believe all that, be saved, have a genuine faith, and just be what I would consider uh, uh, ill um, <laughs> wrong. <laughs> uh, uh, they, they would be. Uh, they, they would not be in, perhaps taught uh, correctly. Uh, they they maybe have, and that's just where their convictions are at. I believe that you could believe that and still be a believer, even being very convinced of it, um, and, and still be a believer. So I would say. You know that's that's second tier. Do I believe they're wrong? Yes, mm-hmm. but the whole another denomination. Yes, mainly Pentecostal. Yes, right, so. and that's what well, that's what clearly places it in that second rank. You know, issue is that uh, it places them there because it's uh, until it begins. If it's health, wealth, first prosperity gospel, well, now we're getting closer to right because they're actually messing with the essence of the gospel. Uh, now, if they're not messing with the essence of the gospel, but they're saying that, you know, you get the second wave, the second blessing of the Holy Spirit after you've been saved, uh, okay, well, I think we're in second rank issue here, but certainly, you know, they probably have some soteriology that needs to be fixed uh, and, and have some corrections there. Now, I'm saying that with friends here, right? That's probably not how I talk about it. Uh, if if it was the person in front of me here. Uh, yeah. So where does uh, uh, perception of sin issues fall into theological triage? So somebody put, let's say somebody says, polygamy is fine, right? Uh, yeah. That's not exactly a theo- theological doctrine. That, yeah. You know, I guess yeah. doctrine of marriage potentially somewhere out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Second, maybe, maybe even third. Yeah, yeah. So it starts getting, <laughs> I know, I know, it's, uh, I mean, so again, this is just my quick, like, answer, right, like, uh, but, um, but how do we determine sin issues, I guess that's my larger question, yeah. how do we determine so, so part of the, I mean, to really get into the weeds on that would be, it would have to be, so what happens, right, is uh, sometimes missionaries go into cultures where this is a normal practice of their culture, and they have multiple wives and a guy gets saved what do you do like is he not saved because he has multiple wives no, no. it's not a first rank issue so it's at least second you know maybe even you know is he wrong clearly like you know but uh he's never been informed by the word his conscience has never been instructed by the word he's got he's got all of these dynamics that he's got to get worked through and you know the ethics issue, I'll deal with that another time on what do you actually do in that situation because everybody's probably wondering about it now. Uh, but, yeah. So how long does it take to 
account for personal conviction? Because not at all trying to defend Zwingli. I think he was absolutely sure. wrong. Yeah. Couldn't you say that the other guy also failed at theological triage? Because, but then it's like, well, no, that was his personal conviction. Yeah. The Holy Spirit living in his life. Yeah. So how do we account for personal conviction yeah. on what I think is a tier one issue and does affect the gospel, yeah. distorts the gospel, and yeah. someone else who says, well, right. I don't actually think that it does distort the yeah. gospel. Yeah, so I don't think it was an issue of his conviction. Mm-hmm. It was an issue of what he did about it. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I have no problem with Zwingli having his conviction of you know that that's what you know he believed. Uh, but his failure you know, to, you know, understand the significance of that issue uh, led him to go allow someone to be executed for it. Well, but I'm uh, the, then yeah. the other guy went on to the other side on the second tier, what we're calling the second tier issue, yeah. and allowed himself to be executed. Oh, from his passivism? Yeah. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Um, yeah. Um, there is dog yeah. My yeah. Question, my, question, my question is, where do we, where do we have to just be like, well, is that what you're saying is the gray area between what could be a first tier and second tier issue? Is like, Christians shouldn't be killing each other over these things anyway. Regardless, like, right, right, right. Yeah. 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 Um, I think Jesus just tended to walk away from people. You know, he's 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 Jewish. He's talking to the Sanhedrin. After a while, he's like. You're just not gonna. You're just not gonna get it, and he just left. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's the same sort of. You just at a certain point, you just walk away. It's it's. Uh, Which is you know maybe what you're saying was uh, Mance's position is kind of more of a pacifist. You know, well I'm just gonna turn the cheek and walk away. You know, and they just kept kind of pursuing him, just can't and get you know, got got to that point. Uh, I guess the fleshing out of this then would be yeah. like, okay, maybe maybe you and I disagree yeah. about. You think that baptism is a tier two issue. I think it's a tier one issue. Right. So maybe I just choose not to sit under your leadership and go find a church. Yes, I, I, I think. With, yes, in I fact, in our membership it. classes, and when we go through that with with folks at the church, we will tell them, hey, if here's where we are. You know, we want you to have your eyes wide open to who we are, what we're all about, what we believe. Uh, if you have a difference and you can, you know, graciously, humbly follow us and, and hold your difference, great. We're okay with that. Like, we're, we're good. Uh, but if you're going to cause an issue of divisiveness and at such a point where it's such a strong conviction that you hold, well, then let us help you find a place that would be in line with your convictions. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what we want to do to hold to the unity of the body mm-hmm. at New Community. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would say absolutely. In that case, my encouragement would be, hey, go somewhere where you can fellowship with, uh, with your brothers and sisters and not have any issue of conscience or conviction and... If you can do that, great. You know that it's not. You know, I tell people all the time here. You know, in our leadership uh, uh, membership class, like it's not the about the kingdom of new community church. Like so, you know, if I can help um, ensure uh, not just the unity of new community church, but the unity of the church, the the global church, then I would rather put you somewhere. As long as you're within first rank doctrine, right? Uh, 
then I want to help you uh, in that. So uh, lots of conversation, I'm sure, but uh, I know we're, we're out of time. So um, let me pray just real quickly, and, and we'll, we'll dismiss. Father, thanks for this time that we can be together. Thanks for the conversation. Lord, I trust that it's helpful uh, to each of these folks, uh, but most importantly, that it's helpful in understanding your word and how we are to uh, filter it and understand it in such a way that would be uh, helpful for our interactions to be pleasing to you. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. amen.